0: You're listening to The Leanings, the monthly newsletter from Strategies at Work, podcast edition, December 1st, 2019. Today's episode is titled, For Such a Time as This. Well, good evening and welcome to this presentation of the distinctives of Kingdom Economics. And I'm Divided this teaching up into two sessions. One is the context of kingdom economics, and the second is the contrast of kingdom economics. And these are not obviously uh, exhaustive discussions. These are just some introductory discussions to this topic to try to challenge you about how to think kingdom. So one of the ways to kind of help you think about this is to think about the context that we live in today. So here's a little simple cartoon this is Lucy and Charlie Brown having a conversation. So Lucy says, tell me something, Charlie Brown. Are there more bad people in the world or are there more good people? Charlie Brown says, well, who's to say? Who's to say who's bad and who's, or who's to say who's good? And Lucy has a profound answer. She says, I will. So this just illustrates that there's always a context in which things happen. And the context in which we live in today is largely humanistic. It's very much like Lucy. We want to define reality. We want to define right and wrong, good and evil. We want to define the societal norms. We want to define everything. We being humans, independent of God. This is called humanism. Now, humanism is not new. It's been around a long time. In fact, in Scripture, we have a great expression here in Judges twenty-one twenty-five, a great expression of humanism. In those days, it said everyone did what was right in his own eyes or in her own eyes. This is what humanism fundamentally is. Humanism began in the, in the fall, in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were trying to live independent of God. They disconnected from the father, which is why every one of us who are their ancestors were born as orphans. We're born in a state of orphanity. When we come to Christ, we are adopted into the family of God, but we don't know how to live as adopted. So the process of growing up in Christ is learning how to live as a son or a daughter in the kingdom. So fundamentally, orphanity is our enemy. It's always going to be our enemy. It's going to be a challenge to overcome the traits of orphanity, But we need to know that is the base nature of fallen humanity. Now, in the last about five or 600 years, humanism has really gotten a boost. I say that in the sense that it's become more pervasive. It's always been around. Uh, the Greeks certainly uh, embraced humanism some 2,500 years ago. But about 600 years ago, something happened in Christianity that really gave humanism a new, new lease on life. It became to really much more energy, much more focus, much more uh, attention of humanity. And that was what we call nominalism. Nominalism is uh, basically a view of reality that questions whether or not God is real. It's the opposite of nominalism is realism. Nominalism means in name only. Realism means it's actual, it's real. And what was happening was there were theologians that existed at the time who began to question whether or not we were limiting God in some way in how we viewed him. To think that God maybe only created a physical universe was somehow limiting. So they began to posit theories about how could we Release these limitations on God, have a more robust view of God, a broader view of God, a more, maybe a more accurate view of God. So they had those questions, which sounded very good and benevolent, but they didn't realize where they were going. Where it led them was basically they began to question everything. And when you start questioning whether or not existence is real or it's just some figment in God's imagination, it's just some idea that the divine being had. You begin to introduce those kinds of ideas and you deny the reality. You open the door now for all kinds of doubts and skepticism. And when you do, you elevate man. You naturally elevate man because man is making judgments about reality that God alone can make. So it was that elevation of man that re energized humanism and enabled humanism to really make a, I guess, its strongest bid in history to be acceptable. And now humanism is very acceptable. Humanism is the prominent worldview of the world. Virtually everybody in the world is a humanist. That is, they think that they have the right to define good and evil. They think they have a right to decide what they want to do and what they don't want to do. You may have heard the term volunteerism. Volunteerism means that we serve in, for example, a Christian community on a voluntary basis. This is a product of humanism. You see, prior to humanism really being exalted and humanism being spread and becoming common, there was no such thing as volunteerism. The Christian community viewed that whatever... Community I'm in, I'm part of that Christian community. I don't have the right to leave. I don't have the right to do something else. I am in that community. So volunteerism is a symptom of that. Another symptom of humanism in our culture today is all the focus on individual rights. You know, I have these rights. The demand to think that I can make my own choices. The demand to think I can redefine reality. Reality. And we're redefining reality left and right. And one of the ways it's happening is our social norms now. And it showed up this weekend. I read an article about a pastor who had had a moral failure about five years ago. And he's now claiming he has been restored. And in this article, he was talking about his past sins. And he was defending himself, which is a big clue that he really hasn't been restored. And what he said was this. Now, this is a pastor. This is a pastor of a conservative denomination. He said... Any sexual contact that's consensual is okay. Now, if you believe that, you don't believe the Bible. Because the Bible is clear that sexual contact is legitimate only in the context of biblical marriage. And so what we have today is people thinking, even people that claim to be leaders in the Christian community, that they can redefine reality. They can accept cultural norms, and what's going on is we have humanism just rising up, uh, and just it, it's just soaring. So let me just give you a few quick, you know, points of history to let you know kind of what's happened as humanism has developed over the last 500 years. In the in the uh, the 14th century, you have theologians beginning to embrace skepticism associated with this. You have epistemology in the 17th century being disconnected. From Revelation. Once you disconnect epistemology from Revelation, you've laid the groundwork for separation of education from God. 18th century was the French Enlightenment. In the French Enlightenment, that was all about Breaking, breaking free from God in every area. Of course, there was a lot of resistance to that, even though there were many that embraced it. We had the seeds being sown in the 18th century that would be germinating in the 19th, 20th, and now in the 21st century. In the 19th century, we liberated science and education from God, from revelation. And then in the 20th century, we've liberated economics, and we've liberated... judicial rulings from God. You see, courts used to make judicial rulings based on Scripture. As of 100 years ago, that ceased. And now we have basically a very populist view of the courts making the decisions that they think the people want. And finally, in the 21st century, we have social norms being totally redefined based on the presumption that we have the right to redefine them. Now we can redefine gender identity. You can decide what gender you are. It's totally up to you. In fact, it's being forced on us. On children as young as three, it's being said they have the right to redefine their gender, and the parents can't stop them. So this is the the toxicity that's coming from nominalism, and it's all because humanism is being embraced by our culture. So this is the challenge. We've got a huge challenge, and if we don't recognize this challenge, we will be victims of this challenge, not in the sense that we couldn't recognize it, but in the sense that we we have not done our job of recognizing the errors that are about us. So that's the context in which we're going to talk tonight. We're going to talk about how to deal with economics from a kingdom perspective and counter the humanism that is all about us today. So let me give you some quick definitions, some common definitions of economics. Economics is the social science that studies human behavior in relation to production, distribution, and consumption of goods and services. That's a pretty basic definition. Or the study of the use of scarce resources to satisfy unlimited human wants. I like this one better. It is the science of choice where people are making choices about products and services A humanistic view of economics is that economics is the stewardship of finite resources to enable man to do his will according to his ways. That, to me, is really what we're doing largely today. Now, let me offer you a kingdom view of economics. And this is my definition, how I view it. Biblically, economics is the social science that describes the factors that determine the stewardship of t four. And T4 is time, talent, treasure, and technology, all of which is given to us, none of which comes from us, it comes from God, through production, distribution, and utilization of goods and services to facilitate finding and fulfilling mankind's role, both individually and organizationally, in the meta narrative congruent with the creation mandate. Now, you may not know all these terms. We'll try to unpack some of these terms for you. But I'm assuming you have some knowledge of kingdom thinking. And you understand we have a great metanarrative going on. And I'm going to show you an overview of that in just a moment. And I'm I assume you know something about the creation mandate, which is the reason that mankind exists. You know, when God created mankind, he told us why he created us and what he wants us to do. That's the creation mandate. Today, we've kind of lost track of that. We don't seem to refer back to that often. You would think if that is really the primary mandate of mankind, we should be talking about that a lot and talking about how to live that reality of being God's ruling agents on earth. But we don't seem to do that. So a a kingdom or Christian view of economics is about stewardship of T4 to facilitate the process of doing the will of God according to the ways of God. This is why we exist. We do not exist for ourselves. We don't exist to assert our rights, our freedoms, our independence, or demand something from God. We exist at his pleasure and for his purpose. And that's the only reason we exist. And everything in society should line up with that and support that reality in all of us. So that's the challenge of learning to think kingdom about anything, including thinking kingdom about economics. So let's look at the meta narrative for a second and think big picture. Can we think big? This is hard to think big. Most of us are thinking very small. It's all about us. What's in it for me? By the way, if you're asking the question, what's in it for me? That's a sign of humanism in you. Yeah, that's hard because most every one of us has probably said that. Maybe even today we said it. And you've got to know, when you start thinking like that, you were not thinking Christian. You were thinking like a humanist. First of all, we have to recognize this existence exists at the pleasure of God. He decreed its existence. Secondly, we've got to recognize the true Great Commission is not Matthew 28. It is Genesis 1. It is the first commission. It is the reason why we exist. We exist to project the rule and reign of God on this universe. And we do it by multiplication and mastery. Mastery is all about exercising the powers that God has given us to develop technology, to help us rule God's creation. Multiplying is about the multi-generational nature of the metanarrative. So this is how it all started. We have God creating a universe that, where in which his rule was uncontested. We have mankind being created. We have clearly mankind told why he's here. And then we have the fall. This is the rebellion. What Dennis calls the war between two seeds. I'm referring to Dennis Peacock. And this is where mankind is trying to contest with God is trying to basically say no to God. You're not in charge. We're in charge. That is called humanism. Humanism is when we assert that we're in control, it's up to us rather than God. Now, what's, what that started when, when the fall happened, it started the meta narrative, the war between two seeds. And God promised us right, at the, right out of the box, the very first thing he promises is this is not going to end well for those in rebellion. It's going to end well for those who are submitting and surrendering to me. And that shows up in the first preaching of the gospel. The gospel is actually preached here in Genesis 3.15. The theologians call it the prot evangelum. Prot means first, evangelum means gospel. It's the first preaching of the gospel. It says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this is God speaking to the serpent. So the enmity is between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Well, the seed of the serpent refers to the kingdom of darkness. The seed of the woman refers to Christ and this kingdom of light. And so this is framing history right here. And it says that the kingdom of darkness will have some victories, but they will not win. Ultimately, ultimately, the winner will be the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So that's prophetically predicting what history is going to be. Everything that's unfolding now falls into this prophetic picture of the meta narrative. So after the fall, mankind is still charged to be God's ruling agents in the war between two seeds. That's an important point to realize because many people think once man fell, the only thing that counts is getting saved. And that's commonly what I hear from my Bible students. When I ask him, what's the purpose of mankind? Well, it's to help other people go to heaven. That's the common answer. I think that's probably not a very good answer. I think a better answer is to realize we're still here to be God's ruling agents. When we come to Christ, we have a role to play in the meta narrative to project the rule and reign of Christ. This is what Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says. Listen very carefully. By grace, you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not a work, so no one can boast. You see, faith is not a work, faith's a gift. Four, verse 10, the next verse. We are created in Christ Jesus to do a work assignment. I'm paraphrasing a little bit to do a work assignment that God has ordained for us to do in the meta narrative. He's planned it and prepared it for us to do. We have been brought to Christ. For such a time as this to play a role that God wants us to play at this time in history, in this generation, with the backdrop of the metanarrative in play. And we have to begin to think at that level. If we think coming to Christ is all about getting a ticket to heaven, to be sure we have our fire insurance policy, to be sure we don't spend eternal life in, in hell, we are not getting the message. We don't understand what Paul is communicating to us. And we have missed the reality that we are here first and foremost as God's ruling agents. The Old Testament reveals to us that we cannot, can never in and of ourselves be God's ruling agents without divine empowerment. That's the critical thing. We have to be born again and then indwelt by the Spirit to empower us to be able to obey The whole Old Testament reveals we can't do it. We don't have it in our nature to be able to do it. But the New Testament reveals divinely empowered, we can do it. And so that's our charge. Step up. We live in the New Testament era. We have the Spirit of God regenerating us and now filling us to to sanctify us and empower us to be God's agents of rule. That's why we're here. That's a really hard, hard message for people to hear, particularly in our time. Now, in the Old old Covenant era, basically, what the Old Covenant is all about is unpacking total depravity. It's revealing to us that we're totally depraved. And you can tell the people of that time didn't get that. They didn't understand it. All you've got to do is look at John 3 and the conversation with, with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious leader. He goes to Jesus, and Jesus is trying to explain to him regeneration. And he's not getting it. And Jesus says, You are a teacher in Israel and you don't get this, which means you have not understood the Old Testament. The Old Testament tells you that man is totally depraved. And that means totally incapable of obeying God in and of himself. Well, given total depravity, the only hope for man has to be regeneration. You have to be born again. You should know this, Nicodemus. Aren't you a good student of scripture? And That's the reality. Even today, we're not very good students of Scripture. We still don't get this. But the Old Testament, through a series of flood, the Tower of Babel, the promise, the law, all of these are revealing to us the nature of man is total depravity. So now we have the New Testament come along. We have the solution is Christ. And now we have the Holy Spirit coming to execute that solution through regeneration and then sanctification. And so this is what this era is about. And God is building his people, his ecclesia, his people who are called out to rule. The term ecclesia means called out to rule. That's the implication. It's not a, not a religious term. It's a political term. Ek means out of and is means called. So it's called out. And the implication is we're called out to rule. So we have the opportunity to enjoy being part of the body of Christ and being part of God's solution as part of his meta narrative, And each of us has a role. Everyone has a role. The question is, can you see it? Can you get that? In the end, Christ is coming, the second advent. There's going to be a millennium of some sort. There's debate about whether that's literal or figurative, exactly what that's going to be. We have the final judgment, and then we have a new creation, and now we have the restoration of the uncontested rule of God. So this is the big story of history. Everything fits into this story. Every person fits into the story. So when you're talking about economics, you're talking about tools that help you do what you're called to do in this story. Now, let's take a quick look at what happens with economics before and after the fall. Before the fall, the economic system was very simple. What you have is you have a garden, and all you have to do is grow your family and you have to expand the garden. It's very simple. You have everyone who is self-governed under God. There's no sin. No one is doing anything wrong. It's hard for us to imagine that. But that's a wonderful environment, and you just to grow and educate families and you don't need you don't need civil government. And guess what? You don't need. The Ecclesia, because the Ecclesia is all about dealing with sin and helping people deal with sin. So it's very simple. And economics was very efficient. And then we have the fall. And what do you have here? Work got a lot harder because now you're not in the garden anymore. You're kicked out of the garden. And you have sin in people. And so as you try to grow and educate families, you get to deal with sin. Furthermore, you have other problems that have happened. What else happened after the fall was suddenly you got to have clothes. You got to have shelter. You're going to need health care because now we got illnesses, sickness. You're going to need social order because you got people out of order and you need the ecclesia to give everyone the truth they need to do what it is they're called to do. So you can see things got a lot more complicated. And you can see the difference here between the fallen state and the unfallen state. In the fallen state, it's all about human potency. In the the unfallen state, it's God's power, divine potency. In the unfallen state, we have homo mensura, which is the word man the measure. This is a Latin term. I'm using the Latin phrases here that would be well known to the theologians. So homo Mensura means man the measure, which is man is trying to be the measure of everything. We define everything. Whereas in the unfallen state, we don't define anything. God defines everything. Our learning is based on man in the fallen state versus learning based on God in the unfallen state. And finally, in the fallen state, you're, you're a slave of natural reality. And in the unfallen state, you have natural and spiritual reality. And you understand how they connect. And you understand that spiritual reality drives natural reality. So the, the economy is dramatically different. Now I'm going to just quickly go through this. This is another way to look at the difference between the default state, which is the fallen state and the redeemed state. Another way to think about this is the tale of two cities. You have the city of man, city of God. We come into this world inherently wanting to build a city of man. We want to build something for ourselves. We want to make ourselves famous. We want to be popular. We want to be rich. We have all these things we want to be instead of wanting to build what God is building. God is building a city of God. So here's a quick analysis, a quick comparison of these two states. First, you have rebellion and death is the default state. In the redeemed state, you have obedience and life. The default state in terms of motive is man's will. The motive in the redeemed state is God's will. The attitude in the default state is pride. The attitude in the redeemed state is humility. The source of wisdom in the default state is the worldly wisdom. It's just naturalism, whatever works. A lot of pragmatism there. Whereas in the redeemed state, our source of wisdom comes from being aware, metaphysically aware, seeing from God's perspective, recognizing what God is doing and valuing what he's doing. We have empowerment. We have human potency in the default state, divine potency in the redeemed state. And the, the metric for success is homo mensura for the fallen state In the redeemed state. We have Deus mensura, which is God the measure. And, and the success is measured in temporal ways. For example, in the default state, money is the big indicator of success. If you believe that way, you're still living like a humanist. And you will live like a humanist until you start seeing money as a tool. Money is a tool to do one thing, and that is the will of God. And until you see that, you won't be anything but a humanist. And that is really hard in our culture because we have a culture that's worshiping money. Money is the big deal. Money is why we do everything we do. It makes all of our decisions for us. We are bound Even the Christian community is bound to humanism and it takes a lot of work by the grace of God and the power of the spirit to transform us into the place where we see money as simply a tool. Finally, grace, you have common grace in the natural state to be able to do certain things that that will enable you to survive. If common grace didn't exist, we wouldn't exist. Common grace enables a fallen man to obey some of God's principles on a basic level enough to survive. But it's never enough to be righteous before God. That takes special grace, the special grace of Christ that brings us salvation through Christ. So that's a quick distinction. Now I want to talk about jurisdictions very quickly. All of you should know that there are five basic jurisdictions where God has delegated authority to man. And man then is responsible to exercise that authority, starting with yourself. You are an individual. You are responsible to govern yourself. Families, the parents are responsible to govern the family. And the workplace, the leaders are responsible to govern the workplace. So this is basically how it works. In the pre-fallen state, everyone was self-governing under God. So this was simple. It didn't, didn't need anything other than this. Now, once we get into the fallen state, things happen. And one of the things that happens that compounds things is Greek dualism. Greek dualism came along and made things worse. It's bad enough that we go from three jurisdictions to five after the fall. The jurisdictions we have to add now are civil government. And we have to add the ecclesia, which is the people of God who are the keepers of the truth of God. You see this in 1 Timothy 3.15, where Paul is talking to his spiritual son, Timothy, and he tells him that the ekklesia of living God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. In other words, it's the purveyor of truth. It it holds on to and discovers the truth of God and disseminates that to the other jurisdictions. Now, what blocks that is Greek dualism. Greek dualism came along and said, you know... What's, what's physical is really not very good, but what's important is the intangible, the spiritual, the non-material. That's what's important. And so with that kind of thinking, it's very easy for the Christian community to hear that and think, well, that means that anything that's really not spiritual is not important. So that would mean physical work is not important. And it's really easy to think that way. That's not a biblical idea. That is a pagan idea and that's contributed to the confusion. In our culture today, what we've done is take it, taken this Greek dualism to an extreme. We have the, the atheists, the agnostics, the humanists of today are trying to tell you that the truth of Christ, that the ecclesia should be disseminating, has no place in our culture. We're trying to separate our culture totally from the truth of Christ, which means that the church, the ecclesia, Is being robbed increasingly of that ability. We should be able to project the truth into all the jurisdictions, which would then guide the jurisdictions to function properly. So, where the atheist will give in to us a little bit, maybe will be the family and our individual lives. It's kind of like saying, okay, we'll let you do it there, but you can't do it in public policy and you can't do it in the workplace. In reality, we should be projecting as a body of Christ the truth of Christ in every jurisdiction and that will enable the jurisdictions to do what they've been created to do, which is to be agents through which God wants to rule, but it has to be ruled according to his will and according to his ways, and that requires truth. Now, so let's just talk real quickly about truth. I'm sure that most of you know the scriptures are our ultimate source of truth, but it's not the only source of truth. We have another source of truth, which is the creation itself. We can learn by studying creation, looking at creation, studying creation. We can learn about how God's universe works. And we learn many things from that, but we recognize everything ultimately is created by God. And we have the gifts from God to be able to explore these things and discover his secrets, his principles, his wonders of his universe. We also have the Holy Spirit who can guide us specifically into situations, just like he did with David. When David was attacked by the Philistines, the Holy Spirit gave him specific revelation for that situation at that time and to that person. That's how specific revelation works. Specific revelation is not canonical for all. It's specific to a person, a place, and a time, a situation. So that's, that's a very unique thing which shows the personal nature of God. He cares for us and will give us specific guidance as we seek him. So this is the sources of revelation. This is the truth, how the truth that the Holy Spirit gives the church to be able to husband its steward should be projecting this now into all the jurisdictions. So let's just see for real quickly how this plays out. There are only four options really we have when we consider the whole idea of will and ways. There's the will and way of man and there's the will and way of God. There's the will and way of man and the, will of, uh, the ways of man and the ways of God. So we have four quadrants in this box that reveal to us how God's universe works. When we come into this universe, our agenda as that young baby is our will according to our ways. But very quickly we discover that doesn't work. That's not truth. You see, only what works in God's universe ultimately is truth. The church should be the purveyor of truth. We should be gathering truth, understanding it, disseminating it, applying it, teaching it into all the jurisdictions. And if you don't do that, you will never function well in your jurisdiction, no matter what it may be. So the will and ways of man is our default state. The next state, which is the most common state, at least in my opinion it is, it's about the will of man but the ways of God. That's where we figured out, you know, it doesn't work to try to do the will of man and the, w- the ways of man. That doesn't work. Okay, If I'm going to rob a bank, I'm going to have to figure out how to be very strategic about this. I'm going to have to be real smart. I'm going to have to use God's principles to do this. I'm going to plan it out and execute it well, which that relates to God's principles. Now, you know, in the end, it's going to get judged because that's exactly what you see in the Tower of Babel is they were trying to do the will of man according to the ways of God, and they wound up being judged. Their will was self-glory. God is not into self-glory. He's into glorifying himself. You try to self-glorify, it will not go well. Then you have the will of God and the ways of man. And this is, uh, this is probably most typically found in Christian contexts, where people may have discerned something of the will of God, but they're trying to use the ways of man to do it. And a great example of this is when David was trying to move the ark to Jerusalem. The ark had been returned after it had been captured by the Philistines. It had been returned by the Philistines on a cart. That illustrated the worldly way to transport the cart. Once it got back in the hands of the Israelites, they should have transported it according to the prescription of the law, which is by poles carried by the Levites. But what they did is they reverted to the worldly ways And when they did, they got judged. You see, that's a big picture for us. You know, the world can get away with some things because God doesn't hold them to a high standard of accountability that he holds us. You got to pay attention to that. Whatever level of revelation you have becomes your level of accountability. Philistines didn't have the revelation, but the Jewish people did and they violated it, and they got judged. So that's when you try to do the will of man, will of God according to the ways of man, ends up in judgment. So all three of these wind up in judgment. The only one that doesn't wind up in judgment is the will of God done according to the ways of God. That's the challenge of learning to live righteously before God. That's the challenge of living in the truth, living jurisdictionally in truth, living as a redeemed person, not in the, the traits of the fallen state. So that's a challenge for all of us. Now, I want to just give you a a little template here, kind of a a model to help you think about how to discern truth. It doesn't matter what you're doing, whether you're doing economics or you're doing uh, public policy, you're doing uh, education, you're raising children, you're managing an organization. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You've got to guide people into truth. Truth is the only thing that works. We see we're in God's universe. He made the rules. The only thing that will work long-term and truly lead to success are his rules. How do we discern his rules? Well, here's, here's an example of how you can discern the rules of God. So this is, uh, what I call an alignment process. It's four steps. First, you have to see reality correctly. Second, you have to understand reality correctly. Third, you have to draw the right conclusions. And fourth, you have to make the right choices. Now, there are several texts we could go to to illustrate that. I'm just going to illustrate it from 1 Samuel chapter 3. So let me just real quickly read you some of this text. The boy Samuel served the Lord in Eli's presence. He was a servant in the, the tabernacle. He served Eli the priest. He was probably 12 years old. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare and prophetic visions were not widespread. Sometimes I feel like that describes our days. And one day, Eli, whose eyesight was failing, was lying in his usual place before the lamp of God had gone out. Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was located. Then the Lord called Samuel and he answered, Here am I. He ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. I didn't call, Eli replied. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Once again, the Lord called Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. He said, I didn't call you, my son. He replied, go back and lie down. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. You hear that? He is serving in the tabernacle. He did not know the Lord. So he went back. And this time, the Lord calls again. The third time. He got up, went to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. Then Eli understood that the Lord was calling the boy. He told him, go and lie down. If he calls you, speak say, speak Lord for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place and the Lord came and stood there and called as before. So what you see here is you see an example of this four step process of discerning truth and aligning with truth. So first, what you see is Samuel doesn't really know that Lord even exists. He didn't know the Lord. He's just going through rituals. So first, you've got to know the Lord exists. So once you know the Lord exists, okay, I see reality. We We have a spiritual being called God that who really does exist. Now, we need to understand reality. He's a personal God. And He speaks. So now, okay, I understand that. So, what conclusion can I got to draw? Well, maybe this guy is personal enough, and he will speak to me. So, what's the choice? If he speaks to you, take the role of a servant and say, "Speak, Lord, your servant listens." So Eli walked him through this process, which illustrates the role that fathers play. Everyone needs fathers, to guide them into alignment with the truth. If you try to guide yourself into alignment with truth, you will just be, you'll be like Samuel and you'll just be confused because you won't be able to see reality correctly. You won't be able to understand it. You won't be able to draw the right conclusions. You won't make the right choices. This requires fathers in our lives. And remember the basic definition of orphanity is being disconnected from the father That's our basic state. We want that. That is, we are drawn to that. That feels good to us. And we have to know that is not where we want to be. We want to get under fathers who can guide us into alignment with God. They guide us into truth. So that is the key for moving forward and walking with God well in his universe. Now, I want to conclude this first session here taking you through... um, an example, a marketplace example, um, of how kingdom order was affected through ruling. You see, remember our role here is largely to rule. And you might say, well, what's that got to do with bringing people to Christ? Well, you're going to see in this text exactly how this happens. And it happens very different from what we normally think. Most of us think we have to go on all these mission trips and we go on these, uh, go do street evangelism and, you know, all this kind of thing. That's, these are the common ways that we do it. You're going to see a different way here, and I'm going to suggest a more biblical, godly way to think about evangelism and about kingdom order. So this is Acts 6, 1 through 7. Let me read it for you, and then we're going to draw some conclusions from this text. Now, in those days when the disciples were increasing in numbers, so this is this is the time when their only ecclesia you know, that is the Greek word that we translate church. And I I think you realize I'm trying to avoid the use of of the word church. I'm doing that intentionally because of my little crusade of trying to say, let's think more biblically. You know, the word church comes from an old English term that refers to a building. And that's how we mostly think about church as a building. So uh, I try to do things differently. So I'm going to call it Ecclesia. And you know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about the the Greek word that's translated church. So going back to that term and what that term meant. So in those days you have one Ecclesia in Jerusalem and the disciples were increasing in number. Please notice it's not the converts. It's the disciples, the followers of Jesus are increasing in number. A complaint by the Hellenists rose. Now the Hellenists are Jews who live in Greece. And the reason they live in Greece. Is because of the dispersion. The dispersion was ha- happened in the Old Testament era, and it should remind them of total depravity. That's what it should remind them of, but they may not recognize that because the dispersion was God's judgment for Israel's sin. So they're here in Jerusalem to celebrate some of the the Jewish festivals, and the Hellenists begin to. They came to Christ. They were part of the, the first ecclesia, and they're together apparently in a fairly communal situation. And now there's a problem. The complaint arose against the Hebrews because the widows were being neglected in the daily diakonia. I'm going to use another Greek word. Is that okay? Can you be okay with that? Hopefully you can be. Diakonia is commonly translated ministry in English. But the word ministry, again, has a lot of baggage with it. So I'm trying to use a different term so I can get to define the term. Diakonia means to execute the commands of Christ. That's what it literally means. So we have this daily diakonia that they're being neglected in. Now, it may not be clear to you exactly what he's talking about, but he's going to clarify in the next sentence. He says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right or pleasing, this is not really a moral term, it's really more pleasing, that we should give up, that is, leave our calling of preaching the word of God to serve tables. You see, what we have here is two different diaconias. There's a diaconia of serving tables and a diaconia of, of teaching the word. Two, di- two different diaconias, but both of them are diaconias. Now, hopefully you recognize that's important. I'm trying to get you to see that as important. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, those of you who have been through my teaching on, on strategic life alignment should recognize immediately the C4 principle. What the apostles did was gave the Christian community a principle. We're going to ha- give you a principle. This is what you do. And we're going to appoint these people to, do, to fix this problem. This is a marketplace problem. Food distribution is a marketplace problem. It is a diakonia that's not being handled right. I'm going to, we're going to tell you how to fix it. In other words, we're going to tell you how to bring kingdom order here to something that's out of order. So the first thing you do is pick out, which that's the role of callers. Callers say, I'm calling you. And you call them based on their character and capability. So you see you have men of good repute and full of the spirit. So you'd think that probably pretty good character. And then you have wisdom. Wisdom is the skill to do something. So that's capability. So we have calling, character, capability. And now we have commissioning. You know, I call you to go do that. And that's what commissioning agents do. They point the way. They have the authority to summon you and appoint you to a task. So that's what the, the, the apostles told the people to do. Now the commissioning is going to be done by the apostles. So the people found, identified these seven men, and the apostles made it clear, we're not going to abandon our diaconia to fix the problem. We're going to find who God has assigned to fix the problem. Isn't that nice that God works that way? He works by assignment? They said, we will divert ourselves to prayer and to the diakonia of the word. That was their assignment. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose... They chose these seven men, Stephen being the prominent one. Who would be the first martyr, by the way? You do understand the first martyr was a marketplace guy. Did you know that? You didn't know that. Okay. Now you know that. All right. So, anyway, they brought these men to them. Verse 6. They set them before the apostles. They they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests made professions of faith. Hopefully you see that's not what it said. That's how we think. No, they became obedient to the faith. You see, that's what a real Christian is, is obedient to the faith. And so now let's just draw some quick conclusions from this. First of all, kingdom work is bringing order out of chaos. That's the essence of kingdom work. You see that in creation. That's what God did in the creation. The six days He's bringing order out of chaos. That's the fundamental nature of kingdom work. C4 is a tool of kingdom order. C4 is the C4 principle. I'm going to talk more about that in the next session so you can see how that ties into what we're talking about tonight. Authority is delegated. You see, the people didn't have the authority to select those men. The apostles delegated them the authority. There is no self-commissioning, which sadly, that's a very common thing to do. People think they can self-define. That's humanism in us again. They, they think they can figure out what they're called to do, and they can just go do it. I'm sorry, that isn't the way God works. God works through authority, which is why you need father figures in your life who can say, hey, you go do that. When you have that happening to you, you have a lot more confidence that you're probably discerning the will of God. Then you have diakonia is in is to all valid or all listed vocations. Serving the purpose of God, no matter what you're called to do, is a valid way. We have workplace ordination. You see what they did? They prayed and lay hands over these men to the the diakonia of food distribution. We don't, that's, again, that violates what we think today. We don't think that way. Maybe because we're a little bit humanistic, could be open to that? Maybe we haven't quite gotten refined enough. Oh, and here's the big part. Now you notice at the beginning, verse one, it said they were increasing in number. But now you look at the end, verse seven, it said they continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly, multiplied, not increasing, multiplied greatly. So you have Ruling well. And that's what they did. They started ruling well by bringing order out of chaos here. And as they did, it growth happens. Evangelism happens. Because now you have some of the most difficult people to bring to Christ become obedient to the faith. The priest. Whoa. That is amazing. And here's the big ringer, because today... We're all about influence. That's the big deal in the body of Christ. That's the popular message. If you go back and realize we're not really here to influence, we're here to rule. But when you do rule well, you will influence. You see, these, these marketplace people had no authority over those priests. The only way those priests could be drawn to Christ is they saw thing kingdom order happening. They saw the function of the body of Christ as it should be. And that's what the Holy Spirit used to draw them to himself. This is what I think evangelism should look like. And until we start functioning like this in all areas of life, I think we'll continue to see a fairly weak evangelistic effort worldwide. And that's on us because we have revelation of truth here about how it should be done and how it can be efficaciously done. So the question is, can we bend our knee to this? Can we really do this? So let me just summarize real quickly and then we'll do a, uh, some questions. The meta-narrative is the big story of history. The war between two seeds, the pro the creation mandate, these are big themes we must understand and recognize are true. They're overriding themes of history Economics became a lot harder after the fall, and that's the context in which we're in. We're trying to deal with economics in a very fallen world. The city of man versus the city of God, and the world between two seats, that is the context. We live in five jurisdictions now, not three, but five, and we have to recognize the authority to solve problems jurisdictionally, and problems need to be solved jurisdictionally. The family problems should be solved by the family, not by the government. Workplace problems should be solved in the workplace, not by the government. You know, the church should not be trying to solve the problems of civil government. They should be giving civil government the tools, the wisdom, the knowledge, the training to be able to solve those problems. But civil government's got to step up and solve problems biblically. We have to know that we have timeless universal principles that will guide us into all truth we have general, special, specific revelation that enables us to discover this truth. And this is the truth out of which we must live. The challenge is always alignment. God's will, God's ways is the only right way to live. Any other way is a distortion that will lead to judgment. Alignment is a four-step process. It takes humility, submission, and teachability, submission to authority, and getting under godly men who can help guide us into and direct us into seeing reality, understanding reality, drawing the right conclusions, making the right choices. And finally, kingdom order is the way to rule well. When you rule well, you will accelerate growth. Your witness for Christ will blossom. You will become sight, salt and light as never before. You will see incredible things happen because people will be blown away when they see the, the body of Christ functioning well by ruling well. And we have grace to do that in Jesus' name.